For joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. In this episode, we will begin a mini-series within our Bible atrocities section, asking the question about if the Bible is misogynistic in its view of women. If you find the content of this episode or any episode that we put out uh, helpful and intellectually enriching and would like to support our show, please sign up as a sponsor for us on our Patreon page or by following the link in the blog to the crowdsourcing section of Podbean. You can find more episodes in the Bible Atrocities series on my blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, visiting us on iTunes, or by heading over to the Christus Victor Network, where you can also check out some other high-quality Christian podcasts. Also, if you would like to pick up your own copy of my most recent book, Measuring McAfee, Why One Atheist's Attempt to Disprove Christianity Misses the Mark, why don't you head over to Amazon and pick up your paperback or Kindle copy today? Well, with those shameless uh, plugs out of the way, let's dive right into this episode asking the question, isn't the Bible misogynistic? That's a woman for you. I asked her to get my shirts whiter. What does she call this, whiter? Just focusing on Christianity in particular, there's nothing in there that talks about equality. If I were to stay committed to the words, ideas, and themes of the Bible, then I could no longer think of women as an equal, but as something lesser. And their only usefulness to me is their submission and their sexuality. That's just like a man. How can I get his shirts as white as he wants? Unless I bleach the life out of them. Either the Bible was meant to have a moment of comedy at the expense of women, or, or, well, I can't think of an alternative. If we're going to be true to scripture, then basically we would say, okay, when it's time for learning, that's a time for women to keep silent. Well, obviously, this is not decided by God. It's designed by man, by men, to be exact, masculine, uh, so that they can keep women in their place. That's easy. Uh, only a fool can't see that. That and the idea that if, if, if you wanted a wife, one of the best loopholes in the Bible was to go out and find a woman that you found attractive and rape her. Even if they want to ask that question to their husband, they should wait until they get home. You know, they should not end the service, be talking. And by the way, this is why I don't believe that women should say amen during the preaching either. Every woman needs to be herself at times. Your answer? Baking. Baking good, baking often. Somebody the other day asked me, they, uh, this, this reporter, he said, um, I heard that you, um, you wouldn't, that it'd be a cold day in hell before you get your theology from a woman. He said, don't you kind of think that's demeaning to the genders? I said, ask Adam what he thought about getting his theology from a woman. Try to do something about your coffee. I hope it would be better today. I should have damned the whole world. I said, the reason your soul, sorry, soul's going to hell is because a woman told Adam what God thinks about things. I wouldn't get my theology from a woman. So that getting rid of the idea of the supernatural is one step, only one, but a very important one. Perhaps the first one, perhaps the biggest one, on the road to emancipation.
In our previous episodes of this series, we looked at the biblical passages that appear to endorse slavery and showed that such a reading of these passages was not only simply mistaken, but also extremely misleading and would often wind up with interpretations uh, of or versions that were completely 180 degrees from what the text was actually saying. If you listen back to the episode on slavery in the Law of Moses, for example, you will hear a response to the typical anti-biblicist statement that Exodus endorses the beating of slaves to within an inch of their life, which shows that not only is this a poor handling of the text within context, but that it is based on such a lack of basic reading comprehension that it winds up saying that the verse means exactly the opposite of what the law was actually legislating. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was so anti-intellectual that I refused to engage with any of the academic literature on an issue, and it led me to so misunderstand a topic, well, actually, I probably wouldn't care because that level of bias is typically blind and proud of it, but if I wasn't completely blind, then I would be concerned with what else I got wrong. If I held some view of the literature that caused me to read Romeo and Juliet as a comedy, for example, I would hope that I would stop and think to myself, how did I get here? I I must have made a wrong turn somewhere around post-modernity or hung a left at some arbitrary bias when I should have made a right at reasonable literary analysis. Well, As we continue in this series, we will see that the fun just doesn't stop with their bizarre interpretations dealing with slavery. The anti-biblicists continue on numerous other areas. In this episode, we are going to begin a series and starting to look at some of the most common passages used and abused by atheistic and quote-unquote skeptical anti-biblicists to show that not only are they completely unfamiliar with biblical theology uh, and the culture of the time and lack any coherent literary hermeneutics, but also that they are often so biased that they simply just don't give a damn. Now, I've said many times that these episodes are, are, are really meant for the balconiers, those looking down at the debate, those who are too timid or afraid to really jump into the fray. And while I appreciate the conversations that happen down on the parade route, you know, down on the ground floor, the center arena, down in the octagon, so to speak, with these fundamentalistic atheists who parrot whatever meme is trending on infidels.org, the purpose is really to help educate those who watch from the sidelines, to help give some more boldness to the Christian who, who really isn't sure how to respond or to help challenge the atheist who isn't sure how to read these passages in order to help them think clearly and rationally and to employ a consistent hermeneutic and how to interpret these passages. I hope to show that the, to the observers which side really has the preponderance of reason and evidence on their side. And in these issues dealing with the Bible, the anti-biblicists are often at such odds with even the most basic reading comprehension and refuse to read the Bible with the same approach to understanding the literature that we would afford any and every other text that come across our desks, 
that the unreasonableness of their hyper-literalistic and uneducated, under-researched and unnuanced rhetoric should be blatantly apparent by the end of this series. Now, one of the areas where they think that the Bible is weak and backwards and antiquated and so forth is the role of women in the Bible. For so many, it's become almost quote-unquote common knowledge that the Bible is backwards and antiquated and misogynistic, patriarchal, and downright oppressive to women. So much so that when some soundbite gets shared of an atheist accusing the Bible of being misogynistic, completely ignoring that such moral indignation is not possible on their worldview, a topic that I've often shown in other episodes, it gets passed along uncritically in an act of un questioning, blind bias, and faithful trust uh, of whoever their favorite uh, atheistic pundit is. This view has become so enmeshed in the atheistic community that for someone to even affirm that the Bible has any historical or ethical value sends off red flags that they are instantly viewed as a misogynist and a bigot. In this series, then I am going to explore this issue from several angles. We will look at some of the ways that the Bible inhabits culture while at the same time being subversive to it. We will also explore some of the overall biblical statements about women, and then we will respond to some of the most common passages that atheistic anti-biblicists employ in their tirades against the Bible. For example, atheist Charles Templeton wrote, quote, the Bible is a book by men and for men. The women in it are secondary creatures and usually inferior. End quote. Christopher Hitchens wrote, The Old Testament, as Christians condescendingly call it, has women cloned from man for his use and comfort. The New Testament has St. Paul expressing both fear and contempt for the female. End quote. One of my favorites, Dan Barker, says in a somewhat bizarre attack uh, on the anti-abortion movement, uh, he wrote, quote, The Bible is not pro-life, but it is anti-woman. A patriarchal system cannot stand women who are free, end quote. And Dawkins goes so far in his little screed that the God of the Bible is flat out misogynistic. Well, are they right? I mean, haven't we all sat through our college literature or history courses and been told that the biblical view of women is that they are property of their father that is then transferred as property of their spouse only to become baby-making factories with no other purpose than to live at the sheer pleasure and whim of the men in their lives? That view has become almost a truism in liberal Western culture. But is it accurate? Well... I need to make two positions clear before moving into the direct answer to this question. Firstly, it is 100% accurate that a woman's place in society has been very different during biblical times than it is today. This is true, though, because our view of gender roles is constantly shifting. The role of men was also very different in biblical times than today. Just as both the, the views of men and women were different in the medieval period, and the Enlightenment period, and the modern era, and then in through post-modernity. Just as they are different in regions and in different cultures throughout these time periods as well, what we see then when we start to think about this issue reasonably and clearly is 
that the fact that gender roles were different in the biblical era than they are today in, say, the late modern post-Christian Western culture is really just basically trivially true. But what this does is it actually helps us to understand what was happening in the biblical record, however. In fact, what should be surprising is not that the role of women during the biblical era was different than it is today, but rather we should be surprised at just how different the view of, of womanhood and manhood was from within its own historical context. We will see this as we go through some of the biblical texts in the next two episodes, but for now I'd like to point out that there was a huge advancement within the Bible in the view of women than in all of their surrounding cultural rivals. Now, the atheist might want to say, okay, fine, there was an advance, but the advance was so marginal and still fell within to that patriarchal and misogynistic framework. This, this analogy might kind of date the episode, but we can think of the Ricky Gervais Verizon commercial where he talks about how a competitor mentions that their network is four times better, and he asks, well, four times better than what? And as it turns out, they were four times better than what they used to be. Well... As the commercial points out, that isn't really helpful. Let's imagine all the other car uh, carriers were at 100, and this provider was only at a 2. So they may be four times better than they used to be, meaning they're now an 8. But all the other carriers are still 100. So this advance, while it's true, really isn't helpful. 8 is still horrible compared to 100. So the atheist can say that the advance in the Bible may be four times better than the other cultures, but it still isn't anywhere near what we have today in, say, 2016 United States. And that may be true, sort of. But this gets us into the second theme, the second point that I wanted to bring out. The question is, what does this shift reveal to us about the intent of the biblical and the divine authors. We're going to see in a moment that what is actually happening is that God is working in a subversive manner to the present culture. You see, the Bible never endorses a singular culture. It always will have points of condition within every human culture and institution because they are always touched and tainted by the effects of the fall. As we saw in the previous section on the so-called slavery in the Bible, what God often will do is to allow the revelation to inhabit the cultural expectations of the time, while at the same time subtly but deeply and substantively challenging its assumptions and the applicability of it to the people of God. We saw this when we looked at Deuteronomy 15 where God was crystal clear about his intentions and his desires for his people. There were to be no poor in the nation of Israel. The Israelites were to act with such compassion and such charity that there was to be literally none in need within her boundaries. That was God's desire. That was God's intention. That was his design for the nation. But at the same time, 
He gave them laws for how to care for the poor and the needy and how to run an equitable system of debt servitude, an unfortunate reality within the ancient Near Eastern world. But what does that tell you? Right? There's a paradox, there's a contrast there. For the Jew paying close attention at that time period, what would it mean if they needed to follow the laws about how to treat a debt servant in their home? Well, it means that they're already guilty of not making sure that there were none that were poor, that there were no needy within the land. If you fulfilled the first commandment, you wouldn't need the second. These laws weren't contradictory, and caring for the poor and needy once they were poor and needy was the just and the right thing to do. But the one law was clearly subversive to the other. This continues into the New Testament where Paul does not attack head-on the institution of slavery, something that was much more brutal in the Greco-Roman period, because all such efforts would have been viewed as attacks on the state and, and, and seditious against the status quo, and every attempt had consistently ended in slave revolts and then the brutal and often vicious retaliatory treatments of slaves in return. So what Paul does is something much more subversive, something much more deep, something that will actually radically rock the foundations of culture when it gets applied later on. What he does is to place the slaves, to place the servants on the exact same level of importance within the church as the freemen. He says, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. He tells Philemon that he was not to view Onesimus as a returning runaway slave, but rather to view him as a brother in Christ. Now, what would that do to Philemon's view of the servanthood? What does that do ultimately to one's view of slavery? What does Paul's teaching that we are to be servants to all subversively do when applied to culture. In fact, once we realize that what God is doing in the Bible is often an act of covert subversion to culture, it's hard to not see it everywhere, and it's hard to not act as a really strong corrective to a kind of fundamentalistic hyper-literalism that's often employed when reading the biblical text as just blind moralism. Think of some of the major cultural features in the Bible and how God acts and legislates directly to undermine them. One example, and no pun intended, is primogeniture. That is, the priority of the firstborn male in terms of inheritance. God sets laws in place to this effect, that the, the, the firstborn will receive the bulk of the inheritance. That's in line with culture. But what does God do throughout history at almost every turn? He always chooses the younger. He chooses Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over his four older brothers, Joseph over all 11 of his older brothers. He chooses David, the youngest, over his older brothers, Solomon over his older brothers, and so on and so forth over and over again 
God undermines and subverts the normal cultural practice of primogeniture by choosing someone other than the firstborn. Now, what does that tell the child of God seeking to live after God's own heart? How are they to view the law? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What is surprising is that once we understand that the major biblical theme just is that the biblical subversion of cultural institutions, it's hard not to see it all over the place. It undermines views of the traditional economy, of the state, of the monarchy, of the king, of the priesthood, of the prophet, of the role of the commoner, of how we should view the poor, the marginalized, the sick, the needy. It undermines or, or, or it acts subversively to how we should view the role of parents and of children, of husbands, and, relevant to this episode, of wives and, more generally, women. This theme of biblical subversion is only logical if the Bible is a product of divine inspiration because there will be no culture, no institution that will remain untouched. Ironically, the quote-unquote skeptical objection is almost required on their view. Because, of course, the biblical mandates will rub against the grain of modern culture on many points. Because it will rub against the grain on many points of all human cultures and all human institutions. This is the uniform teaching of the Bible. As Augustine pointed out, there is the kingdom of heaven and there are the kingdoms of man. Why should we think that if the Bible was true, that it would look like or it would affirm every aspect of modern culture? It wouldn't, and indeed it shouldn't. The Bible will be and should be subversive to our culture and to every culture. It should challenge us. It is the failure of 19th and 20th century liberal theological systems to try and reinterpret the Bible to make it walk lockstep with modern culture rather than allowing the Bible to critique and correct it. This is J. Gresham Machen's magnus opus, Christianity and Liberalism. If you've never read that book, go pick it up. It is fantastic. You see, the liberal views culture above Christ rather than Christ above culture. So what we'll see when we get into these episodes next time dealing with the biblical passages about womanhood is that this subversive theme is played out. That this act of cultural subversion, that, it, that the, the biblical text inhabits aspects of the culture, it places it in the cultural context while at the same time giving indicators that the view needs to be subverted, that there is a much more robust biblical and godly way to view the roles of biblical manhood and womanhood. In the next episode, we'll begin to look at the ways that this subversive theme is played out in the biblical view of woman and of women and how it is displayed in various biblical texts as well as what it means for Christian culture today. 
Now, I know this was a short episode, but I just wanted to get the introduction down and in. We'll get to that in the, in the second episode. We'll deal with those biblical passages. And then in the third installment of the series, we will explore the passages that are commonly given by skeptics and atheistic anti-biblicists to try to show that the Bible is anti-woman and what we can say in response. Now, if you have any passages that you would like me to address specifically, in that final episode or would like to give your 20 cents on what I've said so far, please feel free to send me your comments, concerns, questions, commendations, or condemnations to freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join the Freedthinker Podcast Facebook group and join in the discussions there. Now come meet us again next time as we continue this discussion on women in the Bible. Good night, and God bless.